Welcome to the Shine Freely Podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Reeves, and this is all about human potential. I host conversations with people who are authentic, bold, and kind. Through their life experience, ideas, and research, I'm learning how to shine freely. And in case anything I learn is useful for you, I want to share my experience along the way. My next guest is Alex Hawk, a scientist and engineer with an interest in AI and machine learning. He's deployed recommender systems on the Amazon homepage and search page and on WholeFoodsMarket.com. Most recently, he developed Eight Sleep's autopilot feature, which controls a user's bed surface temperature throughout the night in a personalized manner. Outside of work, he is a father, lover of the outdoors, and has a passion for exploring things known for enriching consciousness. Alex is an expert in a lot of fields that I'm not, and it was so much fun to have someone to explore ideas with who brings such a different perspective to the table than my own. I appreciate both that his perspective is unique from mine and that it seems to be aligned on the level of fundamental values. In this episode, we talk about artificial intelligence, human-robot interactions, nonviolent communication, problems of power, and more. And if anyone has any thoughts in response to any of the questions from this episode, shoot me an email, vicky at shinefreely.com, V-I-C-K-Y. I would so love to hear from you. And, oh, one more thing. So <laughs> there are a few things that Alex wanted to clarify or correct after we recorded this, but he graciously accepted my request to publish the recording as is, along with an invitation to come back for a part two in a few months when I'm back in Texas, and he can clarify whatever he wants to. So if you have questions that we should discuss in part two, send them my way. And I hope you enjoy. Hello, Alex. Hey, Vicki. How's it going? <laughs> it's going great. It's awesome to meet you. Thanks so much for making time today. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to talk. So one of the reasons I was really excited when um, my brother mentioned that you would be an interesting person to talk to is I'm very interested in topics relating to human behavior and the human experience um, from a scientific perspective, for sure. But I haven't yet really talked about any of those things yet on my podcast. And I'm, I'm super excited to have someone who thinks more scientifically and mathematically, I'm guessing from your background, um, to dig into some of these topics. But also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in exploring issues and topics from all different kinds of perspectives. So we can go wherever this takes us and just have fun with it. Sounds great. So to get us started, can you give us a little bit of background on kind of your areas of interest and expertise, whether that's professionally or just things that you've dove into on your own time? Uh, thanks. Yeah. So I'm a middle-aged white guy. Um, <laughs> that, Always helpful to know. Um, you know, spent 20, last 20 years uh, studying science, um, you know, first physics, even before that chemistry, um, and then got really into AI in 2012. Um, and uh, 
you know, AI on some level is just a job for me, but it's a job that I find like very, you know, I'm very passionate about. Um, but, you know, it helps me, you know, uh, live a somewhat balanced life. Um, I feel like fortunate to be in the space, um, you know, compared to, you know, I think, you know, other people that have to work, you know, a hundred hours a week to, to make rent in New York, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate to not be in that position. Um, I can, I have time to be a father to my, my five-year-old daughter, um, explore interests outside of, um, work like, um, you know, meditation and health and fitness hacking and, um, Beautiful. and, uh, just getting to know people. I think, um, AI has emerged maybe as one of the most exciting and impactful forms of science in the last 10 years, because it allows us to answer questions about the world as it is, mm -hmm. um, versus as, you know, it would be in a very ideal container. Uh, physics is great for, you know, predicting where the world's going to go. Um, and like how, you know, tiny molecules are going to move around when you have very ideal conditions. Um, but you know, there's no physical laws that govern the stock market or even, uh, human health. Um, but you know, with enough examples of how, you know, situations unravel, um, uh, a machine can be taught to make useful predictions and with the ability to predict comes the ability to optimize and, you know, choose, um, things that. Uh, or, or choose ways of manipulating your environment um, to get the best possible outcome. Nice. Um, before we dive into a conversation about AI, could you help me as a non-expert in the topic understand the difference between AI and machine learning? Uh, I don't think there is a, a difference. Um, maybe you could say that um, machine learning is a, maybe a subfield of AI. Okay. Um, but I think they, at this point in AI's evolution, I would say they're, they're pretty much synonymous. Okay. A long time ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, AI was thought to be more than just function fitting, but it's kind of moved in the direction where it's essentially machine learning. What changed 10 or 15 years ago? Um, I think 10 or 15 years ago, I think there was a, an interest in like building rule-based systems. So having oh. humans code come in and say, you know, if this is the case, then, you know, the system should respond in this way. Um, and I honestly, I don't know too much about how those systems were, you know, formalized and built. Sure. Um, but those have essentially fallen by the wayside. Is it now, would it be accurate to say that um, the shift is more like now the machine makes its own rules? No, I, I think um, <laughs> that that's something that the AI community. It's terrifying, actually. <laughs> so it, it's that's something that the AI community is actually trying to uh, not let happen. Yeah. Um, uh, OpenAI is one of the uh, foremost um, companies in trying to keep AI safe and beneficial for humanity, and um, you know they they're actively working on ways to keep AI aligned with human interests. That's awesome. And that's that's where my interest comes in too. I think for a long time I was kind of just uninterested in the topic. Like machines seem very <laughs> I I mean I'm interested in emotions and um relationships and it just seems like machines don't have anything to do with that. But then I think the turning point for me was one day when I heard Elon Musk say 
uh, that it would be a good idea to be kind to robots because they have a very long memory. Hmm. And this simple quote all of a sudden made me realize that this is perhaps not an issue for the future that we need to solve, but something we need to solve like immediately <laughs> because these interactions between humans and machines are already happening on a massive scale every single day. Um, and I'm really interested to understand how, like more from perhaps the, you know, human psychology perspective, which is what my background is in, how to work toward a future where this human robot interaction is, is based on kindness and compassion. Hmm. I can I think, ask if, I mean, if you have thoughts, go ahead and share them. Otherwise I can ask you a few specific questions about it. Yeah. Go ahead with your specific questions. So one of them is that one of the things that I personally have been learning a lot about lately and reflecting on a lot has to do with these different ways of knowing. So um, this can kind of in shorthand be referred to as like the head, heart and gut. And it's my impression, again, without being an expert, is that the AI community has spent a lot of time focusing on this like head way of knowing as in like how humans process information intellectually um, and with, you know, and definitely getting into the emotions. It's been nice to see that being focused on more. But one of the things I haven't seen anyone doing, and I'm curious if you know of anyone doing it, is looking at the way that humans experience and process information intuitively, which through my own experience I've learned, uh, first of all, happens extremely fast. And second of all, it's like a massive amount of information is being processed in an extremely short time that you know, the intellectual processing of information is so much slower. Hmm. And, and so I haven't heard anyone talking about intuition in terms of AI. And I, I'm curious if that's even like on anyone's radar, Are people looking at that. And is it even like in the realm of possibility to understand like how a machine or robot would use intuition? Well, I think it's actually fundamentally wow, uh, cool. in, in many AI systems. So when I talk about AI, um, you know, helping us optimize things, um, the notion of best is oftentimes what the developers intuited as best. Mm. So when you think about, you know, optimizing- Like fastest, for example, could be a definition of best. Is that what you mean? That could be, but let, let's consider maybe sleep as an example. Okay. You know, a problem I worked on for about a year and a half was um, how to optimize people's sleep in a smart bed. Ooh, cool. And um, how do you choose your definition of best sleep? Mm. And, you know, you're going to have all sorts of limitations when you try to tackle the problem. Um, you're not going to be able to measure everything about the user. Um, but you're going to have some some measure, you're going to have some information that you can um, rely upon, and from that you know, information you're tracking on the user, you need to come up with um, a signal that uh, is meaningful to optimize. And there was a huge amount of intuition that went into picking that signal. Hmm. Um, I don't, due to my confidentiality agreement, I don't know if I can sure. go into details, but. Um, I, I can say that 
to my knowledge, there is no one formula that um, you know tells you what your your sleep score is, um, and um, everyone has very different preferences for for their sleep, um, and so finding a way to make sure a person doesn't get like horrible sleep by conventional measures, but um, still like their preferences that they've indicated over time are honored. Um, finding a way to capture that, you know, it, it took basically some, uh, I don't want to say guesswork, but it, it just took some intuition. Ultimately, I wrote down a formula. The formula didn't follow from fundamental science, but it, it seemed to satisfy um, the, you know, the many of the goals of our users. Are those like self-stated goals that the users come up with? Uh, yeah, I mean, to some degree. One of the kind of what's going on in my head right now is um, I worked for a CPG company and uh, was exposed to a lot of the consumer research they did for marketing and was always struck by um, like it, it almost seems like researchers think that humans know what they want. <laughs> mm. and I don't think that's true at all. I don't think most humans are self-aware enough to be able to articulate what they want or what they need or what's going to improve their life. In fact, I think that's like the fundamental problem why people are suffering so much is because they have no idea what they want or what's going to improve their life. And so I find it very strange and even actually counterproductive when when trying to understand like what's going to improve a human's life that we rely on asking them questions and then using their answers to design something because I think those answers are not correct. I would totally agree with you. Great, thank you. And <laughs> one way you can, you can address this is you can, rather than ask the user, what do you want? You can look at the user's responses. You can say, how did you respond when we did this? How did you respond when we did this? And if you have a sense of what's a negative response and a positive response, you're not relying on a user knowing what's going to lead them to have a positive response. Your system can figure that out. Um, all you need is an accurate measurement of um, was the response positive or negative. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to this topic of planning for a future or even a near present, something that's even a word, uh, of humans and robots interacting and, and making sure that doesn't become violent is probably the biggest concern. Mm. What are, I guess, what are the main concerns from a technical perspective or, or main like challenges that haven't yet been solved? Well, I, I have to admit, I'm not the world's leading expert in this area, but I do have thoughts. I want to hear um, them. <laughs> so I think one, one thing that differentiates um, mammals, which compete with each other for resources and power and whatnot, and computers is that, um, you know, mammalian life has had to undergo evolution where, um, you know, the most competitive forms of life survived and they replicated their way of being. Um, computers aren't, for the most extent, judged on their ability to survive. You know, they're, they're judged on their ability to do the tasks that the program programmers have, have coded them to do. Um, now, there are evolutionary ways of programming uh, these 
these models and uh, and these AI systems. And it's absolutely conceivable to me that um, if you used an evolutionary algorithm where you know one program was judging other programs, you know, effectiveness um, in a kind of competitive, hostile environment, and then allowing the um, the more effective programs to survive and even uh, sort of take over the evolutionary process and, and further, you know, pass on their, their nature. Um, it, it wouldn't be surprising that you would ultimately end up with an AI system that would, you know, comprehend that humans are on some level an existential threat. Um, and so um, I think we, we probably do need to be careful with the training procedures that we use as well as um, you know how we allow AI systems to evolve uh, and and where we allow them to live, um, but yeah, there there probably are limits to how much we can control that given market pressures and things like this. So it yeah. is quite possible we will see AI evolving um, and on its own, out it, of our control. Quite possible. Yeah. Um, one of the things that came to mind just now, you're talking the, just this process of evolution and this process of um, the most competitive forms of life um, being the ones that I guess carry on. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking in terms of like this short-term, long-term results problem. Uh, I think one of the problems of like this country, particularly if you look at the world of business, um, particularly in like publicly held publicly traded companies, uh, there's this annoying focus on short-term results. Mm. And if a machine evolves based on short-term results, it's going to evolve in a very different way than if it's evolving based on longer-term results. And and my very strongly held conviction is that focusing on the short-term is extremely detrimental and focusing on the long-term results in more resilient sustainable and life-giving systems. So given that machines evolve so rapidly, or it seems like the future is that they will be evolving so rapidly, like more rapidly than humans because they're processing information so quickly. Potentially. I mean, they're, they're very limited in how they can process information, but and it'll certainly depend on what kind of regulations we put in place. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's fair to assume that um, uh, at some point, AI will probably evolve in ways that we don't intend for it to. What do we do about that? Um, well, let me try to answer your, your first okay. question. Yeah, um, so you, I think, or I think maybe it was more of amusing than a question. That yeah, I mean, my question is kind of like, how, is, it, is there a way to build a machine that evolves based on the long-term results because it's like they're using, sh- my impression is like they're mm. using short-term information to adjust. But yeah. like what we're really going after is a long-term result, not a short-term result. Yeah. So it could be misleading. Well, I think, you know, that there's an inherent ambiguity about um, what is the best long-term result sure. to pursue. I mean, e- even as humans, I-, I have to admit, I don't know what my my best long-term result yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> and that was my point exactly earlier with the consumer research point. It's like, how is anyone supposed to, whether it's even the human designing the machine or the machine learning on its own, like how do how is it supposed to know what's beneficial? I mean, there are forms of AI that um, 
are less myopic than others. Um, so reinforcement learning is uh, an approach to learning that um, really considers like sh both short-term reward um, and long-term gain. The problem is you have to have a pretty clear notion of what a long-term reward looks like. Um, and I guess you could encode like societal stability um, and, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, rewards for uh, the system not going haywire and killing its users. You, you can you, you can encode that in a system um, to the degree that you are aware of those possibilities. Um, but uh, you know, it, AI is um, at this. I guess fundamentally, it's um, it, it's limited to do what the the programmers know how to program it to do. What it also find interesting is that this process of defining what the long-term reward is, uh, that seems like something that, <laughs> this is very idealistic, but that all of humanity should be weighing in on and like providing some input to. And yet it's, mm. it seems like it's a very small number of people at the end of the day that are going to end up deciding like, how are we defining long-term reward and how are we building these machines to work toward that? Is that accurate? description um I, I think you know the ai community is um it, it is aware of that that prop that potential problem um certainly um uh there are only so many people with enough money to build um you know the most advanced forms of ai um but the ai community is still very big and um you know a lot of the brightest minds have been thinking about um, and prioritizing like forums where, um, you know, democratization mm -hmm. um, is discussed and fairness in AI is discussed. Um, and fairness in AI. Wow. I think fair is the worst word in the English language. <laughs> mm. I think it's the most divisive word in the English language because I don't think that there's any agreed upon definition. Everyone has their own definition for what fair means. Well, I would agree with that. I, I think everyone has their own definition for every word well, in the English point. language. Touché. Um, and, and interestingly, that's something that is now clear from like modern studies of natural language processing, which is a form of AI. Um, so in a uh, bit of a tangent there, um, but uh, to answer the question you 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 brought up about um, you know AI being misused by just a few people. I think you know OpenAI, as I mentioned before, you know has a has its as its mission to make sure that all of humanity benefits from AI, and um, you know they 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 publish their papers um, you know publicly uh, as do most um, leading research institutions. Like publishing an AI is very uh, very open. You, uh, it's very rare that you have to pay for um, access to machine learning research papers. Um, uh, but um, yeah, there, there are a number of organizations that are, are looking to, to make sure that AI is, is not used for, um, you know, very selfish, myopic purposes. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess one of those issues that's even kind of demonstrated in the problem I just articulated, you know, one of the issues in the world that I think probably everyone could agree on is a problem is imbalance of power. And I'm particularly fascinated by any kind of organizational structure. I mean, I, I do believe currently that organizational structures and hierarch 
hierarchy are needed to some degree to make things happen and um, work together as a society. So I'm not saying I'm not an anarchist. I don't believe in these like flat organizations with no leaders. I think leaders are important, but the moment you create a hierarchy, the there's an immediate problem of imbalance of power. Mm. And I'm, I'm tempted to, in my idealistic nature, believe that there is a way to solve that problem, that it's not the problem is not nece- it doesn't have to be inherent in the structure, but I haven't seen it solved yet. And I'm curious about your thoughts on when it comes to this problem of imbalance of power and perhaps particularly within the context of like a structure that has a hierarchical organization. Is there an approach with machines that could be different so that we can avoid that problem? Uh, I might take it a step back um, and maybe suggest that um, the the first step towards alleviating this imbalance is, you know, having a good policy for data governance. Mm. So allowing, um, you know, the population access to to the data that could be used to build, you know, very powerful machine learning models. Um, uh, and data that, that's used to influence policy decisions. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, data, you know, on, um, you know, e- efficacy um, of like various medical treatments that to my understanding is not publicly available, mm-hmm. but if it was made publicly available, um, people would be able to, uh, there, there wouldn't be um, as much of a reliance upon the government to tell you what is the right medical decision personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you might be able to have a very like personalized way of making your own medical decisions. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is that it's actually going to open up way more transparency and freedom for I mean, if it was all transparent and accessible and open to people. Yeah, I, th- I think I think if data was more available. Um, like like data that influenced like government policies was more available then um, you know the population would in general be allowed to or able to um, you know build its own AI models to make its own predictions like a marketplace would emerge where mm-hmm. companies would get very good at ingesting this data and help people make personalized decisions um, to what extent do you think it's useful or harmful for the government to be getting involved in any of this? Um, it certainly could be useful and it certainly could be harmful. Um, <laughs> both, both, it all depends on the government. Yeah, um, good point. <laughs> um, I mean, usually the idea behind governments ideally is that they, they minimize negative externalities. So they think of the tragedy of the commons. Like if, if you don't have rules that everyone has to abide by, then the commons gets destroyed or overused. Um, so, you know, governments can be um, useful in imposing rules that um, make it so that uh, you know the players of the game of life in this country mm-hmm. um, have to play in a way that you know doesn't create you know chaos and destruction for everyone else. Uh, so, for example. Um, you know, preventing um, 
maybe a law against training neural networks in an evolutionary manner and then releasing those um, trained models on the internet in certain manners, um, making that illegal might benefit society. It might help, you know, regulate um, AI becoming this adversarial thing to mm-hmm. us. Um, but, you know, I think where it becomes an issue is that, um, you know, lobbyists are going to pay, you know, for certain government decisions to be made that benefit their clients and um, not necessarily everyone else. And and then so you, you kind of get the tragedy of the commons where um, the commons are destroyed by the people who pay to destroy them. Mm-hmm. So it... Um, it, it's a it's it's a difficult um, problem. Yeah. Um, it, I guess things could go south a lot of different ways, and <laughs> you know we'll we'll probably have to pick up the pieces a couple times on this one. Um, hopefully, we'll we'll be there to to pick up the pieces. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's. T- I'm. I want to dive into the topic of how machines and humans communicate with each other, um, and. I guess to start, uh, I'm when I think about communication, particularly in this context of avoiding hostility, avoiding a hostile relationship from developing or, or hostile behaviors from emerging. Um, I think that a lot of it has to do with understanding the other's motivation or communicating your own motivation clearly, and so. How does that relate to a machine? Like, well, like, where, where does do, in the future do you imagine that they will have their own motivation? I mean, they could, um, and it it's something like motivation is not something that is easily um, understood just by looking at the structure of a machine learning model. Um, you know, they're they're trained to do what they were taught to do, and so they're. They're motivated to, um, you know, honor all the signals they've been given, and um, yeah. So, for example, like a system, you know, a chatbot may not be motivated to be honest with you um, because, you know, in, in training, it maybe it was it was trained to prioritize entertaining its users, um, mm. or maybe it was prioritized. Um, not to offend its users. Um, and so, um, you know, you, you might get a less than honest answer because maybe the honest answer you ask the, um, the program is, is just, you, you ask it, you know, am I looking good today? <laughs> and maybe you're not looking good. Um, but, you know, the, that, the AI system that gives you the honest answer doesn't get sold or doesn't get a five-star review. Right. Um, uh, yeah. One of the things that I started thinking about, um, I was recommended to explore this book called Nonviolent Communication by, I believe it's Marshall Rosenberg. That sounds right. Yeah. I've heard great. of him. Have you read the book? No, I've, I've, I've gone to a non, an NVC um, one day training camp once. Oh, cool. Yeah. So whenever I started learning about this method, I was so blown away by how effective it was at breaking down communication into like bits of information that were clear and distinct and non-accusatory and communicated 
the experience of, you know, the emotional experience of one person and also what their needs were and, you know, exactly what behaviors or words led to that experience and, and what their request is from the other. And I found this to be such a helpful breakdown, like almost mathematical way of approaching communication to avoid hostile relationships. And I'll just say for the listeners that, um, you know, the guy that developed this method, Marshall Rosenberg has worked in like Israel trying to negotiate, you know, peace talks and, you Mm. know, really high level of conflict resolution type of work. And it's apparently been extremely effective. And so I started wondering how that model of breaking down communication into these different pieces of information and communicating them in a particular way, if that could be programmed into a machine um, so that when they're communicating with the human, it, it can be nonviolent. Yeah, I, I think I think it's certainly, so I think maybe you're proposing there's this AI chat bot that's kind of like a moderator that can listen to two people talk and help steer them towards a more like NBC style approach. That's very interesting. I actually hadn't thought of that. I was more thinking of just um, if you have one human and one robot, just how they interact with each other and how the mm. how the robot understands the human and how the robot speaks back to the human or communicates uh, back in whatever way. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that that's probably an easier problem to solve. Nice. Um, in the sense that um, when that chatbot's being trained, uh, you can provide um, examples where the user got, um, you know, uh, maybe a respectful bit of communication from the machine, and give the the training, give give the model a reward, um, which it's it's trained to seek. Um, uh, and then you know, likewise, when the model is um, kind of a jerk and doesn't, you know, uh, uh, maybe takes an accusatory. Um, way of interacting with the the person like then you give it like a a penalty um i I think that's a pretty straightforward answer to your question but i I don't know if i'm really hitting on the essence of it well i guess what i'm wondering is okay and again like i don't know anything about machines (laughs) or or computer science or anything but if a let's let's imagine a human talking and 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 humans are unrefined to say the least and mm-hmm. you know they're they're maybe kind of spouting their emotions out and they're angry about something mm. is there a way that the machine that they're talking to could almost translate what the human's saying into these let's say like four blocks that the nonviolent communication model lays out in order to understand information uh without this hostility involved and to just break it down to more kind of like concrete information that's not like accusatory is the word that keeps coming to mind is there a way to like translate it into that and then and then also then when the robot speaks back that the robot speaks in a way that follows this nonviolent way of speaking i think you could but i i think in terms of like the robot needing ndc style communication uh inbound uh it, it probably doesn't need that i i don't think computers right now um, have emotions, maybe in the way that Elon Musk maybe postulated they they might, <laughs> hearkening back to your sure, sure, yeah. original comment. Well, I think his point was for the future. Mm. So in the future, will they have emotions? I think they could, they could emerge, you know, as, you know, uh, conscious life flows into um, 
you know, an electronic media, uh, it, it's quite possible that, you know, um, AI, if it can exist apart from us, can experience emotions, sure. Um, but I, I don't think that the types of AI we see in society right now have emotions. Um, at least um, I, I can't conceive of any way that they do. Um, but that, that being said, like, I think that- but they do evoke emotions. They do humans. evoke. So I think, I think in terms of, so in terms of encoding what the user is saying, I don't think- um, It's relevant. Yeah, you need to encode in that. I think, I think they can just take the raw information and then understand how to reply to the person in a way that um, would be nonviolent. I, th I think that's absolutely doable. And as long as the programmer is programming that intent, then there's not like a concern about the robot developing its own motivation, I guess. I think as long as, you know, the, the model wasn't incentivized to have emotions, like to have, um, you know, to develop concerns for its, you know, its own existence and the, the existence of, um, you know, other thing, other entities that it, it sort of has learned to regard as allies and friends, you know, as long as it, it's not incentivized to um, have that sort of concern, um, then it probably won't have emotions in the same way that we do. Uh -huh. I mean, maybe I don't understand emotions that well, but I'm thinking typically no emotions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why we're all still suffering. Uh, <laughs> um, you mentioned consciousness, and I'm curious what you have to say about where that fits in with AI, and if you foresee a future where AI has consciousness. Well, I mean, I guess this ask you're asking a very philosophical question. Yes, um, and I am not a philosopher, but I can give you my very unrefined ideas. Perfect. That. Um, the idea that you know I'm I'm individually conscious apart from you know you and all the people and things around me is it's an idea, um, but my sense is that it's probably not entirely true. Um, you know I, th I think you could argue that you know groups of people have a sort of a collective consciousness, um, and maybe not just groups of people, but groups of people and the animals around them. They're all sort of imbued by some sort of common, you know, drive and sentiment. And um, there is, they sort of behave like a higher life form. And to exclude the machines that they intimately work with and pour their, you know, their hearts and soul into building, to, to say that AI is not somehow an extension or part of the consciousness that present presently exists, I think is um, well. I, I don't think we can say that. I, I don't think we can we can say that a AI is not part of the present collective consciousness. Um, it's, it's my opinion that on some level it is. I can't say to what extent. Sure. Um, Do you think that that same is true of everything? Like, I mean, this table is this part of our collective consciousness? What's the difference between the table and a machine? <laughs> so I, I think you know some, uh, you know theologians and or you know philosophers might say that the table is actually it has some kind of um, uh, spiritual value. It has some kind of consciousness, maybe spiritual value. What a really interesting word. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm spitballing here. It's <laughs> perfect. It's just interesting. Um, but, you know, other people would say that consciousness is an utter illusion and that, you know, this table uh, nor us are, are conscious at all. Um, and I, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an imperfect knower. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I think maybe I, I responded to the question by, um, you know, suggesting that um, maybe a, a broader definition of consciousness should be, um, you know, first considered. But um, good point. It doesn't seem like there is an agreed upon definition of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. But but maybe one way of like addressing the question is to to answer it as though you were asking. Um, could AI become sort of the dominant or a dominant, um, you know, form of consciousness in, in our world? Or could it become self-aware or is it inherently self-aware because of the way it's developed? Um, well, I, I think there's, there's some forms that are not very self-aware, but, um, but I think, I think self-awareness is something that could be encoded and learned, um, would it, in order systems. for it to be encoded and learned, would it require programmers to be self-aware <laughs> or to, un yeah, to understand directly from their own firsthand experience what self-awareness even is? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if that is a requirement. Um, <laughs> like, how can you code something if you don't have any experience with it? Don't you have to understand it to be able to code it? Um, well, I think, you know, there's certain phenomena that, that emerge from, uh, you know, the conditions that, uh, you know, the environment starts in. Um, so, um, you know, our, our, our cells and our body, they're, they're not aware of how to make our organism live in its entirety. At least I don't think they or are. Or so you think. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't know the answer either. Well, I mean, th there is this talk that you can revert any cell to a, a pluripotent stem cell and, um, and then that cell can become every other kind of cell in your body. Um, so maybe, maybe there, there, there is infinite knowledge in that cell. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know the answer. Um, but I, I think, I think it is possible that, you know, a learning can happen, um, by, you know, this higher level system, um, that, you know, can't be achieved by you know the people building it you just said a beautiful phrase infinite knowledge i have never heard that phrase before and i love it because i believe that space is pregnant with infinite knowledge and that there's um all information that has ever existed or can ever exist is present and it's just a matter of accessing it that is the trick. And so I think that most humans, if not all humans, are working on how to do that, whether they realize it or not. Mm. Um, and I don't think very many humans have figured it out. And so um, in order for a machine to understand how to access that information or infinite knowledge, I guess I'm starting to wonder, like, is it possible that a machine could learn how to do it before the human does, like particularly the human that programmed it. Could a machine figure out how to access certain types of information that humans could never access? Infinite knowledge. 
infinite knowledge. Um, <laughs> That's well, a very abstract question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty sure a machine could never access infinite knowledge because machines, by their very definition, are finite. Like they always have finite memory and finite computation time. That's interesting. So they, they could never, if knowledge is infinite, then a computer will always be limited. It will never be able to so access infinite knowledge. They're by, they're inherently finite is an interesting concept because uh, if we talk about humans for a second, I mean, the human body is obviously finite. Uh, I don't believe that awareness itself is finite. I believe it's mm. infinite and that there's, uh, infinite knowledge inherent with it. So now I'm wondering, thinking about that is going to get a little bit like, I don't know, religious or something. I'm sure. not sure, <laughs> but thinking about that, you know, when the, if we talk about death and when the human body dies and what happens to awareness after that moment, you know, which no one can, well, whatever, everyone has their own ideas about that. Uh, and what might the parallel be with the machine that like the machine itself is finite, but could there be something that the machine develops that lasts beyond that finiteness of the machine itself? Well, maybe, I mean, yeah, so I, I guess maybe I've contradicted myself with some of the stuff I said earlier. So if we, if we think of like a, a machine or an AI system as being an extension of humanity, um, then I guess you could say that um, the machine is not, you know, strictly finite, right? Like the machine, the machine maybe, for example, um, might have the ability to ask for more information and the machine might develop a, a sense of, you know, stewardship for um, its, uh, its users um, or its, or the people that it interacts with. And, you know, it, its sense of care might be, um, I don't want to say unbounded because it, um, that's, that's not, that's not a very good example. I, I think maybe the, so there are, I guess maybe the way to look at it is there, there are bounded parts to a machine and there are unbounded parts. So mm -hmm. like there's no limit to which AI can requisition information. It could, um, potentially ask about anything. Um, especially if, um, you know, you allow, um, some randomness to infiltrate its algorithms. Um, mm. I, I guess if there was no randomness, then, then it would be, um, it would be, you know, a strictly finite system still. When but, I hear you say allow randomness to enter, I just like the, I think of spontaneity and mm -hmm. I find spontaneity to be extremely inspiring and also opens up so many possibilities. Uh, and it's exciting to think and also terrifying to think of a machine being able to embrace spontaneity. I mean, is that I, even possible? I am certain it's happening all the time. Uh, I don't know if it's true spontaneity, but, I, but I'm sure they can simulate it. So they, they can, a machine could probably sim, like could probably act like it was spontaneous. Um, but it wouldn't be true spontaneity. It would just be the like human thinking, f experiencing it as being spontaneous. I mean, it's possible humans spontaneity is not true. Spontaneity. Oh yeah. Good. We might point. be more, we might be bounded machines, maybe more bounded than, you know, the AI systems. 
Well, let's talk about that for a minute, uh, if you're willing. What do you, so do you think humans are bounded machines? Um, on some level, um, but I, I think you know we we are we co-regulate each other in ways that machines don't, right? So like a, a baby, yeah, as, as a mother, you, you know that, you know, a baby is like highly regulated by the presence of the mother and, you know, touch and, you know, nourishment. Um, do I think we're bounded machines? I mean, we, we definitely have mechanical um, aspects, but um, I, I don't know if we quite uh, fit the, the definition of machine. Um, I really like that you brought up co-regulation. Um, and that is a fascinating, it, it's just fascinating to understand the way humans co-regulate with each other. Your example of a mother and a child is perfect. Are, is the AI community looking at how humans co-regulate with each other and applying some of that learning to machines potentially in the future? I mean, to so that we could figure out how either machines co-regulate with each other or machines co-regulate together with humans? Uh, I mean, I, I think that probably a lot of the co-regulation that happens with humans could be um, simulated by an AI. So like take a baby who's, you know, was, is orphaned and, you know, doesn't have a mother to hold it. Could you build a robot that could soothe the baby? Um, oh, wow. I, I suspect that's possible, but would something be missing? My intuition is probably yes, but, yeah, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that's possible personally. Just, I'm just there's something. Wow, that would be really interesting for a machine to co-regulate with a baby and meet its need for having a mother. Basically, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, the, the you know the the things that the baby is looking for you know, that, that actually impact its regulation, you know, the mother's temperature, uh, the mother's heartbeat, the presence of, of, you know, breast milk. Um, a machine can, you know, give all of those things upon the appropriate cues. Um, what I've been learning recently in the, um, what I'm studying, particularly with Dr. Gabor Mate, is that so much of an infant's needs just relate to the presence of the parent as mm -hmm. in like the almost like intentional awareness mm. so you know a parent could be feeding their child uh holding their child making sure the child sleep like meeting all of those clear physical needs and even you know like the affection needs and so on but if the intentional awareness and like presence is not there while the mother is doing that then the child experiences an unmet need hmm. yeah i mean i'm I, i'd be fascinated to know the answer like could you build a robot that meets that checks all the the physical boxes but lacks that awareness and like will those children and you could do an experiment where you see like you know the if the outcomes of these kids that have like a, a present mother and the robot to really see what the impact of this awareness is, but I'm almost certain that wouldn't be ethical. Yeah, well, they've done some interesting studies. Um, I don't know the details. I wish I did on where they will, for example, play a, a recording of a mother to a child mm. while he's alone in the room. And like in one example, it's actually like a live video feed. And then another example, it's just a recording. Mm. And then they see how the child reacts differently to it. And it's fascinating. Um, there definitely seems to be something about 
this awareness is really the best word that I'm coming up with, um, that, the, that the parent is aware and that that aware that the child experiences that awareness and they're almost like mm. held within that awareness actually mm. so that was interesting tangent so okay i've asked you some just all kinds of tangential questions here uh where, where are you interested to go with this conversation what do you want to talk about <laughs> anything you mentioned you might have some questions for me oh yeah 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 i mean so what one thing i'm I'm sort of at a crossroads in my, my career. I'm trying to decide, do I go back and get a job? Um, and I'm interviewing a couple places. Um, but I'm also thinking about starting my own business. Cool. Um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of valid reasons to, to not heed the call to take a, a quote unquote hero's journey and explore something. Um, but then, you know, if you don't heed, you know, the most important call, then you, you what feel would, left out. I, I'm already fascinated. You said there are a lot of reasons to not heed the call. Yeah. I guess I can relate to that. I do think that it's important that, you know, that choosing to answer the call is a conscious decision that a person has the freedom to make and they get to decide when they're ready for that moment in their life. Um, but I guess I'm just kind of fascinated. Like, why would anyone ever not heed the call? <laughs> Maybe that's just a personality thing. I don't know. Well, you know, for example, you you might feel a call to to go to to fight in some remote war, right? Maybe you think what's going on in Ukraine is horrible, and you think, hey, I should go volunteer in that army. I've had um, those thoughts. <laughs> well, yeah. So then, but then the question is, you know, is is it worth it? Right. You know, like would the people you depend on, um, you know, be left holding the bag? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, is the thing that you're being called to do, you know, is that, are you being called based on some sort of like vague, um, vaguely marketed idea you received when you were a kid? Um, or is it really the thing that you should go for? Like, so like starting a business is like a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a major thing, as you, as you know, that you give your heart and your soul to for, you know, years. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and it's loaded with risk. Um, but if, if it works out, then it can be incredibly fulfilling. Working for an organization is loaded with risk. That's true. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. And, uh, it's also interesting to think about when you talk about heeding the call, being able to discern what the call even is. Hmm. And I think in my own personal experience, I don't think that becomes clear until, you know, if we use Joseph Campbell's model, mm -hmm. you answer the call to adventure and then you go into, you know, basically the secret world where you have all these transformative experiences and then you come out of that back to the ordinary world to share what you've learned. And in my experience, it doesn't become clear what the call even is until you've gone through that journey and you've found basically your elixir to share back with the world. Mm. And so it's almost, there's this part of, I think it's really important in order to go on the hero's journey, one has to be willing to walk into a dark tunnel where they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And 
you have to be willing to go into a situation where you don't know where it's going to lead you and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You have to be willing to take that risk. If if you only want to enter a tunnel when you can, where you can see exactly where the end of it is and you know how long it'll take you to get there and so on, uh, that's not a hero's journey and it won't it won't lead to much transformation. But like I said, you know, not everyone is kind of up for transformation at every moment in their life. It's like mm. sometimes you do need to just like create stability and not risk going into the dark cave that holds all the treasures that you seek. Right. And the cave lions. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So are you, uh, so you're in the process of trying to figure out what your calling is maybe? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, so I, I am very much exploring the possibility of, you know, starting a business. Um, and it, it's really intriguing. You know, you start a, an AI consulting business. Um, you, um, you know, cease to be dependent on any one employer. So you talked about working for an organization being loaded with risk. And, you know, the risk you run at any one place is you become, you know, redundant or a cost. Um, and, you know, so... Uh, having my own AI consulting, it would be nice for that reason. I think the risk of being part of an organization is that you're then limited by the bounds of that organization, mm. and particularly when it comes to, I mean, any the you know what that organization identifies are their priorities, or the way that they do work, or um, the way that they represent themselves and their ideas and their values and principles. Uh, and the moment that you join an organization of any type, there's some degree of obligation to represent that organization and to it, particularly if you're not at the top to basically do what they say, Yeah, you know, to put it simply. And that's extremely limiting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I feel that I felt that <laughs> in the yeah. past, um, and it's it's one of the reasons that you know I think it's another yeah huge reason to to start one's own business. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's really exciting. I hope you do it because it's you just seem like you've got a lot of creativity, and it might not fit in a box of an organization. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the conversation was to sort of shift towards like how does one navigate a career in AI. Um, I think there there is a time I think when it makes sense for you know each person to think about starting their own business, um, but I'd say the incubation period for getting ready to start your own business is probably it's getting longer and longer probably, mm -hmm. um, and to to really become a master of of various types of solutions, you need access to data, you need access to resources and support um, that that companies can be very good at providing. It's um, an interesting point. In order to become a master of, what did you say, a master of? Uh, providing certain kinds of solutions. Yeah, a master of solutions. Wow, what a great phrase. I want that to be my next title, master of solutions. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I have this other strong conviction. I have strong convictions about a lot of things. <laughs> And then maybe some of them are, I don't know, not that well informed, but I have this strong conviction that everyone's unique and inherent value is like by necessity and without exception, 
their own life experience. Like mm. every single person is a master of exactly what they've experienced in life. There's no one else that has gained the experience that you have. It's very unique. And that's why I'm not so interested when people make this distinction around like, well, what's your professional background or what's your personal background? It's like, it's just you. It's like, you've had all these experiences as a human. There wasn't like, you know, that, that Alex over there had a job and then that Alex over there had a family. It's like, it was all going on at the same time and you were experiencing all of it. And all of those things were interacting with each other and influencing each other, different parts of anyone's life. Um, and, you know, you have gained that experience that no one else in the world has. And there's something about that which uh, makes you a master of, what was it again? Master of certain, solutions. Certain type of solutions. Yeah. So, and, and I think that in order to offer solutions to the world, one has to understand those solutions by their direct firsthand experience. Like to have to like truly live, like have some direct human experience of seeing that solution uh, emerge. I'm with you, I'm with you. Cool. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the AI world, like to get that, those firsthand experiences, um, you know, I think one needs to be humble enough to know that you can't easily get those without the support of, you know, lots of other people working very hard around you. Um, like, you know, to make an AI system work, you need, it, it's the culmination of tons of effort of people across the organization. Yeah. You know, the engineers who are getting the data, cleaning the data, which your brothers are both fantastic at doing, by the way. I would love to hear about my brothers, so <laughs> finish what you're saying. Um, uh, yeah, you have the people getting the data, prepping the data. Um, you have people talking to the people who are receiving the solution on the on you know the receiving end. Um, you have um, you know programmers who are making the thing that actually interacts with the user directly to provide the solution. Um, and you know you have you have even the customer on the far other end who is you know experiencing this and you know you know, giving, giving their feedback, um, mm -hmm. to, to the system. Um, and so if, if you don't have, you know, all of those other things that are kind of needed to, to build an impactful AI system, then you can't really do it. <laughs> What's your, um, like, biggest like motivation or inspiration when it comes to AI? Like what's your dream to, to work on and to be able to focus your time on? Hmm. Well, I guess there are a couple of different dreams. Um, so one idea is if I was to start my own company, um, the idea is at some point um, I would develop enough infrastructure that I own personally, that when I am aware of um, a real business problem that needs a solution, where there's a real market for it, I can jump on it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like a fast track to, to starting a startup. It's a much lower risk approach to starting a startup than, you know, dropping out of a job and writing a business plan. Um, it's something that I could immediately move into. Um, so that's kind of like a, a neb that's not, that's kind of a, maybe a vaguer answer to your question than maybe you wanted, but in terms of like solving problems. Um, like if you could, if let's say 20 years from now, 
there was like some problem that you solved that you just like, it makes your eyes light up when you're like, I feel so happy that I solved this problem because I believe so strongly that this is a problem that needs to be solved. Like, hmm. what is that problem? So I'm aware of a number of efforts that are, are exciting. And um, again, they, they kind of have a, some philosophical drawbacks, but um, so um, there's a company called Altos. They're uh, a startup that is, you know, uh, really focused on um, extending human life. Um, and the, the, they're leveraging AI to basically develop, um, you know, pharmaceutical based solutions and, and perhaps even like maybe programs for life. Are they trying uh, to solve mortality or just? I think they would love to. Okay. So you start, start with life extension and if, if immortality is achievable, then they'll go for it. Um, uh, I'm sure their investors would, would, wouldn't mind that as a solution. <laughs> um, I, I think they're, they're doing fascinating work. They, they've, they've brought together um, many of the best scientists in the world, both in AI and um, in biology. And, uh, but then the, there is this question of like, you know, do I want to live forever? <laughs> and do I want other people to all strive for immortality? Because if everyone strives for immortality, then everyone's going to be terrified of any risks. Um, any time, you know, wasted towards achieving this goal could be re regarded as like the ultimate failure. Um, whereas I think when you sort of resign yourself to a, a bounded life, you know, you say, I'm going to die by 120. That's cool. I'm just going to enjoy what I have. Then I think um, one's existence can maybe be a bit more pleasurable then always trying to get to the next milestone that keeps you alive that much longer till you hit, you know, longevity, escape velocity. <laughs> yeah. One of the, uh, back to Elon Musk, I'm not like obsessed with Elon Musk, but he has lots of interesting ideas. And one of the things I heard him say recently was, um, someone asked him about immortality and, and I think basically like whether or not it was a good idea. And he said something about how when people get, old the older people are the more difficult it is for them to change their minds hmm. and he basically said like we need people to die so that new people will come with new ideas and that humanity as a whole can advance hmm. and without without that that humanity might not advance because people get stuck in their ideas yeah i've heard and this is just like an anecdote that i picked up during my phd was that there's there's always a flowering of, of new science scientific research that emerges whenever um, an old maven in the field dies. Yeah. Because that person kind of was keeping a lot of people beneath their boot heel. And, yeah. you know, when, when they're gone, stuff can rise up. Yeah. It's very um, healthy. Change is healthy. You know, I I grew up in Texas, but now I live in Wisconsin. And I am so happy about the change of the seasons. It's so, it's just mm. like, it's so obviously healthy. It feels good. It sets this rhythm and it just brings this like balance to life when you have change. Hmm. And I think it's kind of bizarre goal to try to solve the problem of change, but maybe that's not what it's trying to solve this immortality thing. Well, maybe I, I'll, I'll ask you some more about your, yeah. your thoughts on the quote. Um, do you think that um, the older people get the more resistant to change people have to be? Or do you think you can grow older and fully embrace change? Great question. I definitely think you can grow older and fully embrace change. And 
I do feel like I've seen people do that. Uh, and it's very admirable. There's also this really interesting thing that happens with passing wisdom on from one generation to the next that I really hope we can all as a species figure out how to fully embrace because I want the young people to understand that the wisdom and the life experience that older people have to offer is extremely valuable and important to understanding mm. how life works and how the world works. And it, it absolutely should not be rejected. You know, I, I, and I say this as someone who, when I was young, it, well, even t today, I guess I'm still young by some people's measure or whatever. Younger than me. <laughs> there you go. Um, by the way, I look about 15 years younger than I actually am, just for the record. <laughs> but anyway, I, um, I think that, let's see. Oh, yeah. So there's, you know, when I was young, I had all these different ideas and different ways of looking at things. And I would try to have conversations with older people and they would just be like, oh, you're young. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm mm. like, okay, how dumb can you be? <laughs> like, if you really don't, if you really think that young people don't have insight to offer because they, but like, it's, it's inevitable. They've, they've grown up in a different time where the conditions have changed and they've learned something about how to work with those conditions that the older people um, haven't realized because they haven't had that same experience. And so I, I really want, you know, and this is problem, big problem in politics. I mean, oh my gosh, mm. we got all these people in Congress trying to decide what to do about social media and they don't even know like how it works. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> It's, it's really problematic, but right. and you so you need this newer ideas and creativity of young people, but you also need those young people to be open to learning what there is to learn from all of the wisdom and life experience of people that have been through a lot. And even though the world may has changed so that, you know, we need to learn what they have to offer and then adapt it to this new world that we're now living in. That's great, like adapting and building on something instead of just burning it to the ground because we think we know better as young people. You know, I, I I've mm. definitely, I have that fire inside of me. Like I, I wanna burn things down all the time <laughs> <laughs> and, and a little bit too quickly. Like I need patience and I, I'm starting to learn that. Uh, and, but I really think that these two things need to come together in a massive way. And another example that's actually coming to mind right now, I was watching, do you listen to Lex Friedman's podcast? I, I actually watched his interview with Elon way back nice. when. Nice. Uh, there was a woman that he had on. She was super inspiring. I don't know how to pronounce her name, otherwise I would. Um, and she talked about how the future of the planet is really going to be in the hands of the youth of Africa because of the birth rates around the world. Mm. And, you know, these are the people that are... It's basically like a extremely valuable and at the moment perhaps like untapped resource of this like ingenuity and innovation and, and spirit of these African youth that in the future, however, I don't know if it's like what, 30 years from now, I don't really know the time frame, but mm. it's going to be absolutely necessary and vital for us to be open to like working together with and that was a fascinating example for me because i certainly don't think like any of our 
political leaders right now, for example, are thinking that way at all. So just this general concept of like, we need both. We need experience and new ideas. And they have to be open to each other in order to, to get somewhere new. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, and I, I feel like I've been on both sides of that coin. Um, yeah, me too. You know, as a, as, as a young researcher, I, I always had, um, I guess you could say, lots of um, ideas that um, the people above me were, they thought, oh, that's, you know, that, that's not science. That's not, that's not legitimate. And then, you know, I'd, I'd go on and I'd do it and it would, you know, turn out to be somewhat significant, maybe win an award for it even. Cool. Um, uh, but I've also been on the side of, you know, not thinking um, folks in the younger generation have any idea what they're getting into as well. Um, and Which is also true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess maybe my high level thought without maybe giving any revealing examples. That, <laughs> um, I think the older generation is more aware of like how awful people can be to each other and how quickly things can devolve. They sort of bend down those routes and um, they understand that, you know, if you take certain directions, you're in for a world of hurt. But then, they get, but then again, they, they don't understand exactly what the, the young people are proposing and the, young, the things they're proposing might actually be, um, you know, truly revolutionary in ways the older generation doesn't understand. So I, I, I'm with you. Um, and I don't know. I don't know a good solution for for mediating that that knowledge between the two groups. <laughs> well, and then so, okay. So we just talked about immortality and why you know it could potentially be not a great solution because it holds humanity back from advancing ideas. So then now, if we apply that line of thought to machines, um, is there the same risk? Like, do we need to make sure that machines are are mortal so that somehow they can advance or do they do it on their own? Um, that's a good question. Can a machine get like in the same way that in, for lack of a better word, like an old person can get stuck in their ideas. Can the same thing happen with a machine? Yeah. I mean, machines definitely can. Um, so, uh, when you, when you look at like a, a lot of the optimization systems that are used by, um, uh, you know, Fang companies, for example, uh, that you know do the advertising, um, they are constantly exploring um, like the effectiveness of different um, ads and advertising approaches. Um, uh, but at the same time, they're trying to balance that with exploiting knowledge that they've had, they've acquired in the past. Um, and so, this like figuring out of how to trade off like exploration um, for ex exploitation or Trading off those two things is something that AI people uh, very much are, are thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. So as like as the world changes around the system, um, uh, AI systems that have effective exploration policies they stay current and they mm -hmm. stay they stay like competitive and productive. Um, but AI systems that don't really um, actively forget some of the past and prioritize adding new information. Um, you know, th those systems can can suck. Um, mm -hmm. So, so there there is, I guess, um, you know, a, a forgetting is kind of needed actually in AI systems, and maybe that's true. And maybe the older generation needs to forget some of you know their traumas, if if that's even possible, to be open to what the younger generation has to propose. 
Well, when you said that, I, I just thought, or maybe not forget their traumas, but heal their traumas. Hmm. And this is the work that I'm deeply engaged in right now, has everything to do with healing trauma. And I've never once thought about how that could be applied to machines and how we could help machines potentially heal their trauma so that they can adapt. Because that has to do with adapt, adaptation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so, I mean, if, if forgetting in machines is an effective solution, could, if, could forgetting on some level be effective? In, well, okay, in so that's super interesting because in the human world, uh, like, I don't think that forgetting is helpful. I think that um, there is so much wisdom and insight to be gained from any, you know, negative or painful experience. And to forget it would be to cut off your access to all of that insight that you could have gained if you're able to heal it. Does it have to be binary though? The forgetting? Oh, could it be, point. you know, forgetting some parts of it? Yeah. And then what does forgetting even mean actually? Yeah. I mean, our, our memories are somewhat dynamic, right? We're constantly rewriting them every time we access them. And I think, you know, I, I have, I've heard that, um, you know, lovers who are still very much in love, they have a very um, rose-colored, um, uh, they have very rosy-colored memories of their past with each other. They've chosen to edit out, you know, some of the negatives, emphasize the positives. Um, and, you know, as a consequence, by doing each other this favor, you know, they able to, you know, couple better. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, I'm going to spend some more time thinking about that. I would love for you to tell me what it's like to work with my brothers. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I worked with them for about two years, maybe a year and a half, uh, back in 2014, 2015. Um, so I worked with Chris first, and then Chris brought Matt over to the company. Um, both very unique guys. Uh, in what way? Well, they're unique from each other, but also unique from, you know, everyone else I've, I've worked <laughs> with. Um, not a lot of wasted words, um, <laughs> especially Chris. I mean, not, not to say Matt wastes words, but Matt's, um, you know, he maybe talks a little bit more, but uh, both very focused when they're, when they're on. Like they can both get eight hours of work done in like three hours or four hours. Um, I can already hear Chris listening to this going like, Psh, more like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. And, I mean, and sometimes he's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've seen him like solve problems that people were actively fighting in a, in a meeting about. Like, we really want to have a developer work on this for like two days. And then Chris raises his hand and says, hey, I just fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but that, that has happened. So uh, you wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear they're really good at their job, but I don't, I don't know what that means. Like, I hear they're just both really smart. <laughs> well, they both like programming, I think, quite a bit. And, um, but they also approach it with kind of like a, a competitive bravado that is like tempered by, you know, a sense of like exploration and, you know, fun. Um, cool. so I, I would say like the, the things that make work soul sucking and, um, uh, you know, slow a person down. I mean, they're, they're, they, they apply to all of us. Um, but I feel like they're, they're pretty good at shaking those off and cool. actually sort of defining the experience for themselves. Um, and fortunately I, I got to program with them, um, in my first job, you know, they, they that was like their third or fourth job each. And 
that was my first one. So, um, you know, it, it kind of impacted my approach to development. Fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Well, you have given me a lot of uh, interesting things to think about that I haven't thought about before. And I'm eager to develop some more refined questions. I might reach back out to you when I have those to see if you can shed any light on any of those things for me. Sure. So thanks so much for taking the time, Alex. It was awesome to meet you. Yeah, you too, Vicki. All right. Enjoy your time in Austin. Thank you. I will. Thanks for listening to the Shine Freely podcast. We have new conversations every week that you can find on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out my blog and information about executive coaching at shinefreely.com.